ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Hawley coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, Donald Trump storms home in the Iowa primaries, a big step in his bid to become the Republicans' presidential nominee. Also, a stern warning for young professionals. If you want a promotion, forget about working from home and creating a highway for the bees, butterflies and beetles. School kids turn their playgrounds into a haven for the pollinators. I'm part of the school sustainability team, so I would like to know how many bugs there are and to see if there's a way that I can help them improve. What are you looking at here? Oh, oh. Airbnb. Donald Trump is off to a strong start in the race to be the Republican Party's candidate for president later this year. He's had a dominant victory in the party's Iowa caucuses, the first contest of the 2024 campaign. In a tight result for second place, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis finished ahead of the former US ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley. This report from Samantha Donovan. Well, I want to thank everybody. This has been some period of time. And most importantly, we want to thank the great people of Iowa. Thank you. Iowa Republicans were still voting in the caucuses when the Associated Press projected Donald Trump had clearly won the first race of the year. Hours earlier, he'd called his main rivals Nikki Birdbrain Haley and Rhonda Sanctimonious. But he had a different tone as he declared victory. I want to congratulate Ron and Nikki for having a, a, good, a good time together. We're all having a good time together. And he continued with that conciliatory tone. Uh, whether it's Republican or Democrat or liberal or conservative, it would be so nice if we could come together and straighten out the world and straighten out the problems and straighten out all of the death and destruction that we're witnessing that's practically never been like this. It's uh, just so important, and I want to make that a very big part of our message. We're going to come together. Mr Trump reminded his adoring crowd of his top policies. We're going to drill baby drill right away. Drill baby drill. We're going to seal up the border. Because right now we have an invasion. We have an invasion of millions and millions of people that are coming into our country. I can't imagine why they think that's a good thing. It's a very bad thing. So I don't want to be overly uh, rough on the president, but I have to say that he is the worst president that we've had in the history of our country. He's destroying our country. And he had these thoughts on international relations. We want peace through strength. Russia would have never attacked Ukraine, would have never done it. Putin and I get along fine. Israel would have never been attacked. Iowa Republicans went out in what US media outlets called life-threatening temperatures to cast their votes at more than 1,600 schools, churches and other community venues. Some expressed strong support for Trump. He's done an awesome job in the past and I know he'll take care of business this time. I don't think there's ever been a more important time for President Trump. Our world is going to hell in a handbasket if we don't stop it. He has a lot of good views. Everything that we 
agree with. He wants to secure the border, which is very important to us. But Trump didn't have everyone's vote. He's horrible. Absolutely disgusting. I don't understand people who would vote for him. Conservative commentator Scott Jennings has told CNN he sees little chance for Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley to overcome Trump and win the nomination. You know, the idea that finishing second here so far back is any momentum. It's not a race for second, it's a race for relevancy. And everyone's losing except for Donald Trump. And this Republican Party wants to give Donald Trump one more shot to prove them all wrong, that everything was a witch hunt, that the election was rigged, that his legal issues are, you know, his just opponent. I mean, it's obvious. They want one more shot at it. It's in the national polling, and we're seeing it show up at these caucus sites. The co-host of the ABC's Planet America program, John Barron, thinks it's unlikely anything will stop Trump from winning the Republican nomination. But he agrees there's a slight chance the court cases he's embroiled in could still influence voters. Well, it's, it's possible about a third of Republican caucus goers tonight said if Donald Trump were convicted then they would believe he was unfit to be President of the United States. And what does John Barron think today's result means for Trump rivals Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis? The expectation was she was going to come second. This means that Ron DeSantis probably doesn't drop out of this race, even though next week's New Hampshire primary polls suggest DeSantis is only getting about 5% support. Mm. Nikki Haley is getting about 30% support. Trump is getting about 40% support. So. It could be a dead heat between Haley and Trump in New Hampshire next week, except that a third-place finish in Iowa, even if it's only by a few hundred votes behind DeSantis, there's no momentum taking Nikki Haley forward. Uh, and if you've got a couple of candidates who are vying for about 20% of the vote each, that gets them nowhere near the nomination. But it's not bad enough for them to drop out. John Barron from the ABC's Planet America program, ending that report from Samantha Donovan. Donald Trump is now one step closer to the White House, but as he continues his campaign to become president again, he'll also be spending a fair bit of time in the courtroom. He's facing more than 90 charges. Jill Wine-Banks is a lawyer who served as a prosecutor during the Watergate scandal and is a critic of Donald Trump. Jill Wine-Banks... That's what you call a decisive victory. It wasn't a surprise, of course, that Donald Trump won this, but it is momentum for him, isn't it? It's significant. It, it is a decisive win, but it is completely expected. Anything less than this would have been very much an unexpected result and would have hurt him. Donald Trump's victory here... Is it a sign of what we will now see in the primaries going ahead, that a win in Iowa will translate into those key states across the United States? No. I think what this is showing is how strong the evangelical vote is and how much they support Donald Trump. But Iowa is not representative of the population of the rest of the states in the United States. In Iowa, you have 54% of the voters being evangelicals. In New Hampshire, it's half that. New Hampshire will be the first primary. That's much more representative of the racial and religious diversity of America than is Iowa. So you're saying that Iowa is not deeply significant because the voters of Iowa are quite different than voters in states like New Hampshire. Yes, it's not predictive of the rest of the country. And we've seen this 
time and time again where the winner in Iowa does not win. Um, sometimes there's an unexpected win. For example, uh, President Obama unexpectedly won Iowa, and that gave him the momentum to go on to actually win the nomination. But it's oftentimes not the case because it is so not representative. Although successive polling has shown that Donald Trump is also ahead in key states, hasn't it? Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, he's definitely, I don't think it would be a surprise that he will be the nominee. That's, I think, basically what everyone in America is thinking of. But there is some chance that if Nikki Haley gets some momentum going, that she could give him a run for his money. I don't think anyone thinks that she can actually win the nomination. But she's getting a lot of financial support from key supporters that used to support him. The wild thing, of course, about this, Jill, is that Donald Trump is facing an avalanche of legal charges, 91 felony charges across four states. Polling out of Iowa showed that more than 60% of voters thought that Donald Trump would be fit to run for president even if he was convicted of a crime. That's extraordinary. Yes, please don't ask me to explain it because it boggles my mind to think that anyone would think that a person who even if convicted and every single one of the candidates except for Christie, Governor Christie, who is out of the race now, he withdrew because he had no support. All the other candidates at a debate raised their hands saying that even if he was convicted, they would vote for him. And he's already got fraud charges leveled against him that have been upheld. He has had the defamation case and rape uh, or sexual assault case of E. Jean Carroll. And tomorrow starts the second E. Jean Carroll defamation case. There's so much going on in civil suits, the New York fraud case could destroy his entire business in New York. He could be out of business in New York within the next month. He's, he's going to be spending a lot of time, money, and energy defending against what seem to be pretty strong civil and criminal cases. And yet, it's baked in in terms of his supporters. They don't care. I, I think in terms of the general election, it's still a good shot that he will lose, but it is almost guaranteed he will win the nomination. And it's not a given that he would lose a general election either, is it? It isn't. And in a, in a speech that he gave after the Iowa result, he said he's going to straighten out the world if he becomes president again. But Jill, what do you think the world would look like if Donald Trump is re-elected? It's, you know, I just got an email from a British author that I have been corresponding with about Rosemary Woods, who said, I despair, it's happening again. His policies in terms of the environment and climate change are horrible. His policies in terms of NATO, he would withdraw from NATO. It, it's terrifying to me. And the only thing that will stop him is either the 14th Amendment, which in my mind clearly says that a person who engaged in insurrection like January 6th is not qualified to run. But if that doesn't keep him off the ballot, then Democrats and independents and sane Republicans have to come together to make sure that he does not win. 
Jiwine Banks is a lawyer who served as a prosecutor during the Watergate scandal. Saudi Arabia has made another huge foray into the world of professional sport, recruiting champion tennis player Rafael Nadal to be the face of the Saudi Tennis Federation. The appointment has prompted accusations of sports washing, an attempt to distract from Saudi Arabia's poor human rights record, as Bridget Fitzgerald reports. In this slick promotional video, a group of kids cheer as Rafael Nadal surprises them at their tennis clinic. The clip, shared by Nadal on social media, was produced by the Saudi Tennis Federation, which confirmed overnight that the former world number one is its new ambassador, the new face of tennis in Saudi Arabia. For me, the, the goal is to promote tennis all around the country and to create the infrastructure to create players growing. In a statement, the Saudi Tennis Federation says Nadal's being recruited to help grow the sport and to inspire a new generation of athletes. While there's no confirmation that Nadal's being paid for the role, or if he is, how much he might be paid, there's been backlash from journalists, commentators and fans on social media criticising the tennis great for partnering with the Gulf Kingdom. Saudi Arabia has an atrocious track record when it comes to human rights. Nikita White's a campaigner on international issues at Amnesty International Australia. They are one of the world's most prolific executors. And even though we've heard a lot about an improved human rights record in Saudi Arabia, they continue to execute people. They continue to imprison women and others who speak up for human rights. In 2023, Saudi Arabia made some significant moves into international tennis. It hosted its first ATP Tour event, the Next Gen ATP Finals, in November, securing that event until 2027. It also hosted a high-profile exhibition match in December between Carlos Alcaraz and Novak Djokovic. And this move into tennis comes after significant spending in other world sports, including soccer and golf, most notably the Live Golf Tour, which was bankrolled by Saudi Arabia. By ploughing billions of dollars into sporting events, into sporting teams, Saudi Arabia is really hoping to whitewash their reputation for human rights abuses. And what they want is for when people to think about Saudi Arabia, they think about the Live Golf Tour, they think about Rafael Nadal, they don't think about women's rights activists being imprisoned or journalists like Jamal Khashoggi being murdered. This kind of investment into sport by governments or individuals who are trying to improve a bad public image is known as sports washing. Sports washing really is using the platform of high-profile professional sport to create an image and create an association that's more positive than what the reality is. Hans Westerbeek is a professor of international sport business at Victoria University. He says there's plenty of evidence to show that sports washing does work. One only has to look at the way in which hardcore supporter groups, for example in the Premier League, embrace those who come in, buy their clubs, bring big bags of money to the club, buy success and make those clubs competitive again when they haven't been for for decades prior and for all those supporter cohorts to not really think about where the money is coming from but more important 
that the money that has been brought in brings them success by association. There have been some reports that Saudi Arabia could host the WTA finals later this year and talk that the kingdom is also looking to purchase some high-profile tournaments, including the Miami Open. Courtney Walsh is a senior sports reporter at Fox Sports Australia. I am certain that something will happen in the near future because money always talks, but exactly how it pans out yet to become quite clear. Courtney Walsh says tennis groups and event organisers will be trying to balance the perception of partnering with nations like Saudi Arabia and simply needing the money. There are people who are advocating for movement towards there because of the financial status. We know the WTA went through a period where they were really stretched financially during the pandemic. Tennis Australia went through the same issue in terms of the pandemic and the massive cuts or the massive hit to the income here. So it's it's probably a time where... <laughs> You know, things are changing. There's a period of flux, period of uh, of what happens next in tennis, and it's probably ripe for, for rich investment, and it, and it is Saudi Arabia that does have the funds to do that. Rafael Nadal withdrew from the Australian Open earlier this month after he suffered an injury at the Brisbane International. Bridget Fitzgerald. This is PM with me, Samantha Hawley. You can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. Now to a warning from the big end of town to younger working Australians. Get back to working in the office or risk hurting your career prospects. That's coming from the UK boss of accounting firm PwC, speaking on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum in Switzerland. He says junior staff need to be in the office at least four days a week or they'll soon be replaced by artificial intelligence. But is that a realistic threat? Reporter David Taylor takes a look. Sydney-based recruitment specialist Nicole Gorton struggled working from home during the pandemic. Yeah, I struggled. Um, and, and the minute that I could work with somebody, I found somebody to work with, I did. <laughs> she has a demanding role and getting work done, as she puts it, requires face-to-face -face interaction and collaboration. So naturally, she feels uncomfortable working in isolation and away from people. I would become uncomfortable. I can probably do a day. Uh, it's my least favourite day of the week. I can do a day. In her professional role, though, she can see the benefits of working from home. Some people can work really, really well uh, in complete isolation at home and their level of productivity can really increase because they have zero workplace distractions, a quieter environment and com can completely focus. The chair of accounting firm PwC in the UK, Kevin Ellis, has taken a more hardline approach in his attitude to working from home, warning junior workers they risk losing their jobs to robots if they stay at home. Generative AI, he said at the World Economic Forum, is performing tasks that in the past our more junior staff trained and cut their teeth on. Without those tasks, he said, you've somehow got to get people through the career path faster. If you're asking me my opinion on how you succeed in your career, I'd be in the office four to five days a week. But should workers be taking their cues from their bosses? Or should there be a more collaborative approach to how and where Australians work? Workplace psychologist Ellen Jackson says demands or directives from bosses can cause anxiety for workers, especially if those employees have built their lives around working from home. There is the needs of 
the organisation. And then there's a lot of lifestyle factors that will make a contribution. So for some people, they would rather be able to reduce commute time, for example, and feel that they were using that time productively in their role. For some people, the ability to be able to be on hand uh, a little closer to home, potentially, if kids or somebody else where they have a caring responsibility, you know, those sorts of things come into play. So it's really a multifactorial situation. She says bosses need to have a chat with their employees and agree to any working arrangement together. There's probably a conversation, though. There would be a conversation that's required for people in order to make that adjustment, uh, to put some of that why factor in place. You know, why is it that I'm being asked to come back? Does that work for me? Is there benefit to the organisation? And once we have an understanding of the why and the reasoning, then that helps to kind of shift a bit of that motivation if that's what's required of it. As a recruitment specialist, Nicole Gorton agrees that staff who work from home do risk losing career opportunities. But a middle ground can be achieved in jobs where working from home is possible. It really does depend on the job function, number one. It also depends on your appetite to progress your career, number two. Number three, life stage. What stage of life are you at to be able to uh, be 100% in office or 100% at home? So, you know, everybody has different motivations depending on life stage, right? Then, you know, what fence, you know, where do, where do I sit with it? I truly think hybrid works and we've worked that out and we worked it out that it works very, very well. Recruitment specialist Nicole Gorton. Will you be buying any special Australia Day merchandise this year, whether it's temporary tattoos, stubby holders or thongs emblazoned with the Australian flag? They might be a bit trickier to find. Supermarket giant Woolworths won't be stocking a dedicated range, prompting calls for a boycott by federal opposition leader Peter Dutton. Mr Dutton's call was big news, but what do shoppers think? And will they be taking their business elsewhere? Isabel Musali reports. Just days after Woolworths announced a move away from Australia Day merchandise, a Brisbane store was spray-painted with the words boycott Woolies, among others. But today, shoppers don't seem phased by the controversy. It's a free world. If they don't want to sell it, they don't have to. Why should anybody dictate to anyone else what they should or shouldn't have on any given day? No, I'm an Australian. I'll always shop at Woolies. Australian, oh, yeah, eh? Yeah. Yeah. We'll be buying our land from Woolies or Coles, you know? It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> haven't read an article, I've just seen the headlines. And what's your view? Does it change your opinion about whether you'll shop at Woolies? Um, no, not at all. <laughs> Do you celebrate Australia Day? Um, no. It's a similar reaction among shoppers in Sydney CBD. Yeah, I feel like Australians' like minds are changing, so I think businesses have to adapt with that. I think it's a really good move from Woolworths, but I think, you know, the comments that someone like Peter Dutton has made... I don't think that's really going to affect the way um, people are going to shop. The supermarket giant stocks Australian flags all year but won't be selling dedicated merchandise for the public holiday. A spokesperson attributed a gradual decline in demand over recent years but added at the same time there's been a broader discussion about January 26 and what it means to different parts of the community. Aldi and Kmart have made similar moves. Opposition leader Peter Dutton reacted to the news last week on commercial radio station 2GB. I would advise very strongly to take your business elsewhere, to go to IGA or Coles or LD. And I think until we get common sense 
uh, out of a company like Woolworths. Uh, I don't think they should be supported by the public. But Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has labelled that stance bizarre, claiming it would put jobs at risk. RMIT marketing expert Dr Amanda Spry studies brand activism. She believes Woolworths' argument that it's about declining sales and says on those grounds shareholders should welcome the move, while customers following Peter Dutton's boycott call will be in the minority. He's actually asking consumers to act politically, so it's quite a contradictory statement that he has come out with. We've obviously seen that some consumers have responded to his grandstanding and they have been boycotting, they have vandalised stores. But I think for many other consumers who see this, you know, as a positive move from Woolworths, they're not going to really respond to those calls for a boycott. They're probably not going to pay much attention to it. Kmart did a similar thing last year. Do you recall a response like this to that decision? No, that's what's been really interesting because this has obviously been sort of widely discussed in the news in the last week in relation to not only Woolworths but also Aldi and Kmart, but it seems to have gained much greater traction. I think that in general the supermarkets have been thrust into the spotlight much more so this year than last year because of the upcoming government inquiry and because of people's concerns with the rising cost of groceries sold by these supermarkets. Yolanda Yetta is a professor of social psychology at the University of Queensland and has examined attitudes towards Australia Day. She says the political reaction to this move was entirely predictable because it's a polarising day. But she believes Woolworths has done their homework on community perceptions. What we're talking about is just a little bit of merchandise that people might buy and they can get it either at Woolworths or get it somewhere else. It's a, it's a non-issue really. So it's a, it's an interesting debate, but it, it speaks to the polarising nature of uh, Australia Day and the dates on which we celebrate it. And uh, everyone tries to, you know, gets involved and tries to speak to strengthen their, their base, basically. And Professor Yetta says if not this year, the Woolworths decision would have been inevitable. Isabel Musali reporting with Rachel Mealy and Rachel Hayter. How much time do you spend thinking about the great pollinators that get active in our parks, gardens and school playgrounds? I'm talking about bees, butterflies, beetles and more. These creatures are crucial, but they're being pushed out as humans change their environment and the consequences could be dire. But a group of primary school kids in Sydney is trying to change that and the results are looking good. Tom Melville went along to take a look. At Erskineville Public School in Sydney's inner west, around 20 children are searching through the native grasses, flowering shrubs and fruit trees. They're trying to find the pollinators that help the ecosystem thrive. Um, maybe for, like, the, the native bees, not only the European honeybee. Have you, have you seen any of these native bees before? The kids aged 8, 9 and 10 take pictures of the creatures and upload them to a database so scientists can keep track of pollinator numbers in this school playground and beyond. You've got a like a yeah. native beehive over there, yeah. isn't it? That's pretty cool. That one is the stingless sugar bag bee. There's a native beehive nearby, but we also see some European honeybees, some cabbage butterflies and a couple of birds. Not a bad haul. This school is part of a network called the B&B Highway. Food's my 
like to do is because I'm part of the school sustainability team. So I would like to know how many bugs there are and to see if there's a way that I can help improve. It's a simple concept. Bees and other pollinators can't fly forever. They need to take breaks. For example, bees only fly about 500 metres at a time, but in an urban environment, food and shelter can be hard to find. So creating these patches of green means these pollinators can make their way around the city. Nicole Lewis is one of the program's founders. Last week we were here talking about and uh, developing skills and knowledge around biodiversity, who are our pollinators, what is the important work they do, and assessing the uh, level of biodiversity at the school, so what sort of habitats are we sharing when we're here. Without pollinators, the rest of the environment will begin to break down. About a third of our food crops rely on pollinators. The students also get to plant some of their own flowers and native shrubs to really build up this part of the B&B Highway. We are trying to provide, uh, you know, obviously flowering plants is the best kind of habitat. Also connecting habitats is really important for wildlife corridors, so making sure that's, that's available. But also teaching about constructed habitats, so the fact that, you know, let's try and do everything we can to support these pollinators, many of whom actually do use hollows as their homes, which we are really losing you know, at a rapid rate. There's now 130 of these B&Bs across three states. They're set up at schools mostly, but also corporate headquarters, retirement villages and social housing. And in this school playground, the students are fully engaged in their task. What I want to see is more sustainable plants, more native bees and native stuff. Cool. And, and you? Um, I would like to see lots more pollinators around to help our plants grow. I just want like more, more plants because it attracts pollinators which are good for the environment. If we didn't have any pollinators then we wouldn't have things like broccoli, like blueberries and other really yummy stuff. The organisation that runs the B&B Highway Planting Seeds says it's seen a tenfold increase in native bees in the areas it's worked on. Tom Melville reporting. Thanks for joining me for PM. I'm Samantha Hawley. Have a lovely evening. Good night.